good evening, everyone. Um, I was going to come up here and tell you how uh, I'm not the regular preacher, and our preacher was back on the way from Hawaii, but they're already back, so I guess I can skip that part. But just like to thank everybody for giving me this opportunity to speak to you guys tonight. I'm very humbled for this opportunity, and um, just pray that this message is helpful for everyone here and for everyone in the world who might happen to listen to it. Um, the title tonight for the lesson tonight is God's Grace is Greater. One of the most frustrating things that I've heard from people in the world and from Christians alike is when they say things such as, how could God love me? How could somebody as bad as I am, a sinner such as me, how could Jesus save somebody like me? Why would he love me? Why would he want to save me? So tonight I want to just talk to you how God will save you, how God's grace is greater than any of your sins that you could possibly have done. I'll show you some examples in the Bible of some sinners that uh, God says is his friend, that says God is after his own, or he's a man after God's own heart. So I'll answer two questions tonight, and I'll ask them right now. One, is there anyone who God's grace cannot reach? And then two, is there anyone who is good enough on their own to be worthy of God's grace? So the first thing I want to do tonight is go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you're turning there, just to give you a brief overview of what Paul is doing here, is he's writing to Timothy, who is a fellow preacher, and he starts the letter off by giving Timothy a warning about false teachers. It doesn't specifically say in the uh, book here and in his letter exactly what the false teachers are what they're teaching, but it gives you some clues such as they're probably teaching that you do not have to follow the law, that you can commit all these sins, you know, and just love God and you'll be okay. It doesn't matter what sins you commit, that all these sins are okay. And specifically in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, he goes on and lists several of these sins. Uh, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and lastly, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul lists these here, and from there, Paul's going to go into a prayer of thanksgiving. And I like to think that reading the rest of chapter 1, that it's a parenthetical implication there, that regardless of what sins you have committed, these people in Ephesus that, he is, that Timothy is preaching to, regardless of whatever sins that you have committed, Paul's going to go on to say how awful his sins are, that there's not a sinner that's been worse than him, that he is the chief, the foremost sinner. So I like to think the implication here is that regardless of what you've done to you people in Ephesus, you're not as bad as I am. Your sins are not as great as mine. And Paul will say in there that God's grace has reached even him, that God has chosen him. So regardless of what you have done people in Ephesus, God's grace, if it can reach me, it can also reach you. So I just want to read here verses 12 through 17. Um, this is, again, Paul speaking to Timothy, the preacher there in Ephesus. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, 
we'll come back to that part later on, anointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul starts this off here just thanking God for how, despite how awful of a sinner Paul is, God still chose him to carry his work through. He lists three generic sins here. He, lists, he says he's a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And later on tonight, uh, we'll uh, delve deeper into the sins of Paul. But for now, we'll just leave it at that. From there, Paul thanks God that his mercy and grace was poured out to him. Despite his sins, he says his grace was poured out to him. He then mirrors what Jesus says in Matthew 9, uh, verses 12 through 13, where Jesus says that he came not for the righteous, but he came for the sinners. He came for those not who are healthy, but for those who are sick. That's who Jesus came for. for. Not for the righteous, but for the sinners. It's those who are in need of a physician, not the healthy. So Jesus' purpose here on earth was to help those who are in need. People like Paul. However, Paul goes a step further here. Not that Paul, uh, Jesus just came to save the sinners. He also lists that he himself is the foremost sinner. And I'd like to say that it's not so much the quantity of Paul's sins, but specifically the nature of Paul's sin. It's, it's in Paul's mind that there's no one who has reached the lows that he has reached in his life as a sinner. Paul also again says here, I'd like to reiterate this point, that God's grace was poured out to him. Despite him being the foremost sinner, God's grace was still poured out to him. So if Christ came to save the sinners, who are the sinners? We know Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us that all of us have sinned, so all of us are the sinners. So all of us are who Christ came for. We are all sinners. So Jesus came to save all of us as we all have sinned. And I know some of you might be asking, well, does that even include some of those people in the Bible that we think so highly of? Did Christ came, come for them even though we might consider them righteous? All of them are sinners, so Christ came for all of them. In the past you know, few years, I've read through the Bible a few times. Um, and I know Brent likes to tell the joke from The Simpsons where Homer reads through the Bible, and he says there's only one good person in this whole entire book, and that's Jesus. Well, as many times as I've read through this Bible the last few years, there's only one person in this thing. Everybody else is a sinner. Jesus is the only one that's good. Everybody else is a sinner. So, for now, from now on, I want to, not from now on, but from here I want to just talk about some of the popular characters in the Bible. Some of the people that we would think are good people, good righteous people. Uh, even the Bible lists some of them as righteous people. And I just want to go through and take a different look at them and take a look at their sins. 
Um, those people I want to take a look at are Abraham, Jacob, David, Peter, and Paul. We'll begin tonight with Abraham. So if you want to, you can go turn back to Genesis. Uh, the story of Abraham extends from Genesis 11 through 25. And I know Brent has covered a lot of this recently in his Sunday morning's uh, sermons as he's been going through Abraham. Um, the first one I want to look at tonight is in Genesis 12, uh, beginning in verse 10, and we'll read from there. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh give, gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So here the sin is clearly Abraham lies. He lies to Pharaoh about who Sarai is. Um, and technically, yes, Sarai is his sister. But the reason that Abraham said this is pure deception. And because of this lie, Pharaoh's house was ravaged with a great plague. And it says in this one that Sarai took, or, or the Pharaoh took Sarai as his wife. Um, so the sin here again is Abraham Line. The next sin will go to Genesis 16, where we'll read verses 1 through 6. Here Abraham and Sarai fail to put their faith in God, so we'll begin reading here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. So just the background of this, we all know that God promised Abram and Sarah that he would promise, he would give them a seed, and that through this seed there would be three promises through this seed. And Abraham and Sarah take it upon themselves here to not trust in God and they themselves say okay well we'll take it upon ourselves and I know I'm barren Sarah that is so we'll give Abraham my concubine and he can go into her and that's how we'll have this seed so that uh, we can the we might have the promise that God has for us um, so not only do they not put their faith in God but it's also adultery and I know it was the custom of the day for the men there to have uh, concubines and other things, but that doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean God ever ordained it. Um, 
marriage, as we know, is between one man and one woman. Um, also, I'd like to make a point. If anybody can show me where in the Bible somebody took a concubine or a second wife and it actually worked out for them, let me know. I haven't seen anything, so um, it just it doesn't work out. I can tell you that. Um, the next one, we'll fast forward to Genesis 20. Again, we'll be reading verse beginning in verse 1. Here's... Um, This one's going to sound awfully familiar from the first one we talked about. Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. For she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he, him not, did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. I don't know about you, but I read this and I think, really, Abraham, again? Didn't you just do this not too long ago? You're going to go and do the exact same thing? So the only difference here in this story is that Abimelech, which through the providence of God, not through God, not through his own luck, he decided to um, not take her as her wife through the providence of God. So his people didn't get the plague that the Egyptians got, luckily, for his sake. So again, we see Abraham again is lying about who his wife is and personally deceiving people, not for any righteous reason, but for his own sake, just so that they won't kill him. On top of that, at this end of the Abraham story, we see in Genesis 25, 6, that Abraham had more concubines. This is a, probably a good trivia question for anybody who would like to trick somebody. Go ask people how many sons Abraham had. Um, most will probably tell you two, but you'll see in Genesis 25 that he had three more from another wife after Sarah. And then a- even after that, it says he had concubines where he had more sons. Not just one son from a concubine, which would be Ishmael, but more sons through concubines. So how many sons did Abraham have? I don't know. It doesn't say. It just says he had many. So, again, he had more concubines and more wives. Um, so, again, just more adultery. So we see Abraham through these four stories. He was a serial liar, committing the exact same lie. He was a serial adulterer. But what does it say in other places about Abraham in the Bible? In James twenty verse twenty or James two verse twenty three, um, there James calls him. He's a says he's a friend of God. In Hebrews eleven, the chapter on faith, there it lists Abraham with those who have great faith. He is commended for his faith. Galatians three verse nine, Paul there says that Abraham is a man of faith. He is the man of faith. So, if Abraham, who is this liar an adulterer, if these things can be said about him, God's grace, despite his sins, are greater than Abraham's sins. 
The next person I want to look at is Jacob. Uh, he's the grandson of Abraham. And just a little side note, um, Jacob's dad, Isaac, goes to this same Abimelech and does the exact same thing. Says his wife is his sister to not be killed just like his father. So, you know, the old saying, the apple doesn't fall from the tree. Well, it certainly didn't in Isaac's case. And Jacob, you see, is not that much better. I'd say he's not any better. He doesn't specifically do that exact same thing, but he's a deceiver just like his father and his grandfather were before him. So let's go to Genesis 25, and we'll see the first great deception of of Jacob here where he blackmails his brother. 25, beginning in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. This Esau despised, thus Esau despised his birthright. So we see Jacob scheming, deceiving his way to his brother's birthright. Go to Genesis chapter 27, we see Jacob again scheming with his mother, um, beginning in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here am I. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. From there, I'll, for the sake of time, I won't read the rest of this passage, but from there, Jacob's mother goes to Jacob and says, he's about to give Esau his, 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 his blessing, so I want you to go and get some animal fur, put it on your... <coughs> put it on yourself and go and I'll make your son or your dad his favorite uh, meal and we'll deceive your dad into giving you your brother's blessing. So he does that, deceives his dad and gets his brother's birthright. So now only he not only deceived his brother into blackmailing him to give him his blessing or his birthright, but he also deceives his father into giving him his sons, who Esau is the oldest son, his own birthright, his blessing. From there we see Jacob runs off and he ends up going to his uh, uncle Laban and works seven years and he gets a wife, but it's not the wife that he expected. So he works seven more years and gets another wife, which is the one that he wanted all along, but he's already got a wife. So this makes... Jacob, an adulterer, he has two wives, back to what we talked about earlier. Two wives, wife and a concubine, not good, not good. But Jacob doesn't stop there. He also sleeps with both of his wives, concubines, and ends up having 12 sons from them. And he gets caught in their own internal struggle to give Jacob more children so that Jacob will love them more. So you see Jacob not only as a cheat, a blackmailer, a deceiver, he's also an adulterer. 
committing the same sins his grandfather and his father before him committed. What does it say elsewhere in the Bible about Jacob? In Romans 9.23, it says God says that Jacob he loved. He's also listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith and commended for his faith. So if Jacob, or if Jacob is this blackmail, deceiver, adulterer, and he's also a man of great faith, what it says, I submit to you God's grace can reach him too. The third person I want to look at is David. So you can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel. Um, over the last few years, um, in the 2030s class, we've been talking a lot about Daniel. We've been studying his life. And certainly whole sermons can be preached on the sins of David, which are quite numerous. Um, tonight I'm just going to touch briefly on a few of the big ones. So, if you will, turn to Second Samuel chapter 11. And this is perhaps one of the most famous ones here. We'll begin reading in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. Already, we're already, we're only uh, one verse in. We've already got one mistake by David. Instead of going out to war with uh, his people like he should, like the king should, he decides to stay at home and just remain idle. From there, we'll keep reading. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to, came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I'd just like to let you guys know, in case you don't know the story, David at this point already has a wife. Actually, I think at this point he already has two wives. I don't know if he's married Abigail yet or not. But regardless, they're not married. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. So not only did David not go out and make the mistake of not going out to war like he should have, which... If he had went out to war, guess what? He would have never been walking on his roof and seeing this woman. He'd have been out to war. But he also gets this woman and commits adultery. Takes her and commits adultery, a married woman. Um, from there, it gets worse. And David tries to get it to where that it doesn't look like he did anything wrong. Tries to cover up his sin by getting Uriah to come back and sleep with his wife, which he refuses to do because he's supposed to be out at war. He's, he refuses because he wants to do what he's supposed to do, unlike David, um, and that is go to war. From there, we can go to verse 14 and pick up there, and it just continues a downward slope. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. David killed Uriah. 
He might have not done it by his own hand, but he set him where, date, where he knew he would die. And not only did he set him there, he made Uriah deliver the note himself. So David not only is an adulterer, he's dealing in idleness, he's also now a murderer. But Bathsheba, who eventually takes as his own wife after Uriah dies, is not his first wife, as I mentioned before. David also, throughout his life, takes seven other wives. He's got Michael, Ahinoam, Abigail, Makah, Haggith, Abital, and Eglah, through which those seven wives, or eight wives, including Bathsheba, he has many sons. One of those sons decides to rape his sister, his half-sister, David's daughter. And David refuses to discipline him. So yet we have another sin here, as David refuses to discipline his sons, which, if you know the story, sets off this gigantic battle between uh, David's sons as they start killing each other, and one tries to overtake David because David didn't discipline the other son properly. Um, It's just a big mess, all because... David refused to go out to war. The last sin of David that we will talk about is um, one that we've talked about. Um, we talked about this morning. We talked about it last Sunday morning um, in the Chronicle study in the Bible class. Uh, David takes upon himself to take a national census, even though all of his advisors said, no, we don't need to do that. He still does it. He does it to try to show his own uh, strength for his own pride and vanity. He shows a lack of faith in God and pride in his own perceived strength. Um, So the sins which the Bible lists for David includes adultery, idleness, murder, refusal to discipline his sons, outright defiance of God, and the lack of faith in God. Of Of the offenders that we have seen so far, he is by far the worst. Um... But what does the Bible say about him in other places? Well, in Acts 13, verse 22, it says there that David is a man after God's own heart. Wait, this guy who's killed people to try to cover up his sins and committed all these other sins and adultery, that's a man after God's own heart. But even more, in Hebrews 11, he's listed there as a man of great faith as well, as Isaac and Abraham and Jacob, all of them were. He's also listed there. So this great sinner, who is a murderer, adulterer, is a man after God's own heart. I submit to you that God's grace can reach him too. Next, we'll switch to the Old Testament and we'll go to Peter. Um, If you will, turn to Matthew 14. We won't read all of these, but we'll read this one here. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 28. This is a very familiar scene to all of us. Beginning in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Peter here shows very little faith in God. Yeah, initially he had a lot of faith. He actually got out and started walking, and then he got a little scared because of the wind. 
and he lost his faith and started, started drowning. In John 18, verse 10, we see Peter, as he's standing next to Jesus, and the temple guards come to start to arrest Jesus and to take him away. Peter draws his sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. We know that Peter denied Jesus three times, only a few hours after he cut off Malchus' ear, just as Christ had prophesied to Peter that he would do it. And Peter's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Peter did it. He denied him three times. After Jesus is resurrected and returns and commissions the apostles to spread his gospel, Peter is found not preaching. Peter is found on the water by Jesus, fishing. In Galatians 2, verses 11 and 13, Peter is also accused by Paul of being a hypocrite. As Paul was telling the Hellenists, they didn't have to live under the old law, and they didn't have to do these things. Well, or he was telling them to do these things while he was not doing these things. And Paul there calls Peter out and says, you stand condemned. He said that to Peter. Peter was stand, stood condemned for his hypocrisy. So Peter, who is, as we know, the leader of the apostles, one of the three closest apostles to, to Jesus, shows an extreme lack of faith consistently in the Bible. Shows anger and idleness, hypocrisy. Peter is a sinner. And the Bible speaks of him. In Galatians 2, in that chapter that we just, on that verse we just talked about, Paul says he's one of the three apostles with John and James, one of the pillars of this New Testament. One of the, he's the leader of the apostles as Jesus acknowledges him. And Jesus himself, through his lack of denial, knows that Peter loves him at the end of John, at the end of the Gospel of John. So this person here who is, lacks faith, who shows anger and malice and strikes out at somebody, shows hypocrisy, God's grace can reach him too. The last one, which is the person we started speaking of in 1 Timothy, is Paul. He's the last person we're going to look at. Paul himself says he is the chief of sinners. Uh, let's go to Acts 7, and this is where we are first introduced to Paul. Acts 7 and verse 58. It's the story of Stephen. Stephen is, as we know, he's going out and preaching, uh, preaching the gospel of Christ. So we read in Acts 7 verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city, him being Stephen, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first mention of Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Continuing in, verse, in chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Later on we see in uh, chapter, chapter 9 where Saul is, actually I think it's still in chapter 8, 
where, actually no, it is the beginning of chapter 9, Saul still is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked him for letters so that he could go elsewhere and continue dragging off the Christians, putting them into prison, killing them. So, Paul, we see, is a murderer. He's an outspoken critic of Jesus. He's a blasphemer. He, like he said in 1 Timothy, is chief among sinners. So this murderer, this blasphemer, what else is said about him? In 2 Peter 3, verse 15, Peter says, He is a beloved brother. In Acts 9, Jesus personally chooses him as an apostle. His chosen vessel to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles. And there it says he was baptized. In 1 Timothy, at the very beginning, it says he was judged faithful. This person who is dragging off Christians, killing them, putting them into prison, an outspoken critic of Jesus, this one was faithful, was baptized. God's grace reached even him the chief among sinners. So all five of these guys, all five of these men we just talked about, all of them are sinners. Time doesn't speak, uh, time does not permit me to speak of Moses, who himself is a murderer. Thomas, who doubted and did not believe. Matthew was a tax collector, a cheat. Aaron crafted an idol while Moses was on, uh, the Mount, was on Mount Sinai receiving the law. Countless other characters in the Bible, sinners, all of them. Yet, all of these that we talked about are all commended by God. And they're all chosen by Him, spoken of as righteous. God's grace reached all of them, no matter what their sin was. All of them are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, as that is who Jesus came for. So the answer to those first two questions, A, is there anyone who God's grace can't reach? If it can reach Paul and Peter Abraham, if it can reach Jacob and Peter, if it can reach Moses, all murderers, adulterers, all of them, if it can reach all of them, there's no one that God's grace cannot reach. It can reach the worst sinners. His grace is enough. It overflows for all of us. His grace is enough. The second question Is there anyone who is good enough to be worthy of God's grace on their own accord? I submit to you, no. As we have seen, none of us have lived a life that on our own, we are worthy of the grace that God has given. But it's still there. It's still poured out for all of us. So no, not Abraham, not David, not Jacob, not Peter, not Paul on their own, are righteous enough for God's grace, but God's grace still goes out to all of them because of His mercy. Not one person in this room, not one person in the Bible, not one person in the history of mankind, except for Jesus, has lived a life. All of us are sinners, and God's grace reaches all of us. To further this point, I'm going to name two pretty shocking modern-day people whose God's grace can reach. I'm not going to say it did reach. I don't know where they were at in their life, at the end of their life. I don't know. I'm going to draw some parallels from these these characters to Bible characters that we talked about tonight. First person is Bernie Madoff. 
Bernie Madoff, if you don't know, cheated hundreds if not thousands of people out of their money, became a billionaire from cheating people out of their money. Lying and deception was his game. It's not too different from Jacob. Deceived people to give them something, to give him something so that he could be rich off of that. Bernie Madoff sins, though they are many, God's grace can reach him. The last one is Adolf Hitler, one of the most evil characters in the history of the world. He ordered his army to take people from their homes and put them in prison and killed millions of them just because of their religion and their ethnicity. Sounds pretty familiar to Paul, doesn't it? Not too different. He's probably viewed as one of the most vile people there has ever been. Despite his sins, God's grace can reach him. There isn't anyone whose God's grace cannot reach. So three conclusions for tonight. One, to those who have not accepted Jesus' saving grace, it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter how awful you think your sins are. It doesn't matter. There's no end to God's grace. His grace is greater than all of your sins. You are, we are, who Jesus came for. Number two, when a sinner comes to Christ, as it says in 1 Timothy, when it speaks of Paul, it shows Christ's fullness. That is when God is glorified. Just as we saw with Paul, as his being saved, as his as Paul's being saved displayed his glory, and it displayed Jesus and God's perfect patience. There is nothing more encouraging to a Christian, speaking from my own account, than seeing someone giving his life for Christ. There's nothing more glorifying to God than somebody giving their lives to Christ committing their lives to him and having his grace poured out upon them. Three, to the Christians, a reminder. Please remember this. We need to search out every opportunity to spread the gospel. It doesn't matter how deep in sin you think somebody is. It doesn't. God's grace can reach them. So don't judge somebody. Don't think somebody is too far gone. They're not. Personally, I have known drug addicts, biker gangs, homosexuals. I have known it all sinners that have come to Christ. I've known it all. So don't ever think that somebody can't, because they can. If you just share the gospel with them, Pray that God touches their hearts. They can be saved. God's grace can reach them. So if you're a Christian that has sinned, do not get discouraged. Repent of your sins. As we've seen with Abraham and Peter and Paul and Jacob and Moses and all of these guys, David, all of them were sinners. All of them were saved. All of them are friends of God. We all sin. All of us. What makes one a man after God's own heart is not living a life that is perfect. What makes a man someone who is after God's own heart is being sorrowful for your sins, repenting of them, and despite and knowing what your sins are, you still love God, you still go to Him and ask for His forgiveness. 
For those who have not yet given themselves to Christ, do not feel that Christ does not want you. He does. Do not feel that you cannot be saved. You can. God has set a plan in place for all of us. If you have heard the gospel, if you believe that Christ is our Savior, then repent of your sins. Come forward and be baptized in His name and give your life to Christ. Give your heart to God. Have faith that His love, His mercy, His grace is big enough to save anyone. Because it is. I assure you, it is. If you are ready to give your life to Christ, I ask you to come forward and speak with me as we stand and sing.